When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. Uh, we're getting quite smug now, Zach, aren't we? Because we've, we've got another Georgian history one. I know, we're getting a few of these Georgian ones under our belt. Today, we're talking about fashion, shoes and, wait for it, masculinity. So no stereotypes about women in sight. Here to help us make sense of it all is Matthew McCormack, Professor of History at the University of Northampton and author of Embodying the Militia in Georgian England and The Independent Man. I'm really excited about this. I don't know about you, boss. Matthew, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. I love that you've titled this The Gentleman Wears Prada, question mark, Zach. Uh, I yeah, love yeah. About men's fashion. See, I, I, I mean, look, you just got to take one look at me to know that I know nothing about <laughs> fashion or designer <laughs> labels. Um, so, I mean, in fairness, folks won't be able to see this, but I've turned out in a jacket today just to kind of try and keep the keep the side going on that score. But yeah, yeah it's smart. It. It is smart, but the way you're in all black, you look like a, a budding nightclub bouncer, which I really like because you're the least likely nightclub bouncer I know. Um, right, okay, Matthew, <laughs> on that note, uh, break this down for people because dress history might not be something that everyone is familiar with. We're specifically going to be talking about shoes, which yes. I am the worst woman in the world. I just do not give a crap. I would rather buy a stinky old history book than a pair of expensive <laughs> shoes. What can historians learn from shoes? Well, I think shoes are fascinating objects. I think like a lot of, you know, past physical things, we can learn a lot from them. We enjoy going to museums to see things about the past. Um, so, I mean, shoes can tell us about fashion in the past. It can tell us about consumption patterns, all those kinds of things. But I think um, shoes are also unique as sources because a shoe supports the whole body, okay? So it's the only garment that does that, and it has a really big impact upon the rest of the body. So how that body stands, how it moves, how it walks, how it dances, the health of that body, all these kinds of things. And because of that, it also impacts on what that body can do. So can the wearer of that body perform physical labour? You know, can they run? Can they dance? That kind of stuff, okay? Um, so I think for that reason, they're unique. They're also unique for another reason. I think they give us a record of the body because the shoe has to bear the whole weight of the body. Um, shoes have damage. OK, so historic shoes, you can see the outline of the wearer's foot. You can see the kind of the stretch marks. You can see where it's bent. You know, I know that any pair of my kind of shoes stuff. has a slant on the heel yeah. where I walk slightly odd. If you look at a shoe, you can get a sense of how people walk. You have to yeah. think about their gait, that kind of stuff. Um, and I mean, thankfully, a lot of shoes in museum collections are worn shoes. They're not new, pristine ones. They're ones that have been worn by people in the past. So we can get a real idea about, so they're effectively a primary source about that individual. 
Yeah, I've never thought about it like this, but they are strangely intimate, aren't they? Because Alex is saying about hers, I mean, I'm flat-footed and I kind of walk a bit like a duck, so <laughs> both of my heels uh, kind of end up wearing away at the edge. So the more I'm thinking about it, the more I'm kind of seeing what you're saying. What's your source base here? I mean, are you literally handling sort of the 18th century equivalent of a slightly bad-smelling trainer? Or do you have kind of paper records of orders and designs or something else entirely or a mixture of of all of those things what what's what are you working with to try and put this together yeah so i use a mix so i use texts about shoes although they're often not very revealing because shoes are very everyday yeah they're the kind of things that people don't bother to write about just because it's so everyday they don't tend to record their feelings about oh, how was it like to wear this shoe that's not the kind of thing that you find in a historical source um i use kind of images of shoes both ones that survive and also images from the time so you know paintings prints images those kind of things but i think the most revealing source for thinking about a shoe is a shoe itself okay so you gain a lot more by kind of physically studying the object firsthand than you do by using maybe a, a kind of a paper source a text or an image i do you know what i just find this absolutely fascinating it i have i've seen some baby booties uh that i've held um i'm trying to think of my exact you as well i i know that if you want first-hand material on soldiers bitching about their boots i've got it coming out of my ears oh yeah absolutely Uh, yeah i've held baby booties that people kept for their like for people who died in the war so these are like 1880s 1890s little shoes and stuff they are it's like Zach's saying they are strangely intimate aren't they it's very moving yeah because I think I mean particularly a child's shoe yeah uh and particularly perhaps a child you know that's died um but a child's shoe is something that's kind of quite a sentimental thing isn't it and shoes in general I think they have a very close identification with their wearer okay there's all sorts of superstitions connecting shoe to the person who wore it because the shoe kind of forms to the shape of your body yeah it becomes kind of part of you in a way it's like a second skin it's made of leather which sort of is a second skin in a way um so there's all sorts of ways in which shoes are identified with their owner um you know so you know a a small shoe can perhaps be a a luck token for example Mm -hmm. or people used to um, hide worn shoes around the house so in around thresholds and in chimney um, breasts and things like that as a way of kind of warding off evil spirits because there's a sense that the shoe kind of embodied something about their owner and also people are quite there's lots of superstitions around um not wearing second-hand shoes as well i know people do shoes on ebay and things like that but there's still a bit of reluctance i think to wear yeah a it's like the shoe. bowling shoe thing as well isn't it that creeps yeah. me out the idea well, because it's kind of manky um, yeah because shoes do take on you know some um you know bodily they take on sweat and kind of other things so it's kind of a bit nasty but also there's a there's a sense that this kind of belonged to somebody else this kind of has, has formed to their body it's not it's not something that my body so there was a bit of a stigma even in the 18th century around um wearing second-hand shoes and that's at a time when shoes were really expensive um people would typically only own one pair so yeah people feel that the shoe is quite an individual thing so how do you read a shoe 
apart from looking at my shoe and going, she walks really weird or Zach walks <laughs> up looking, I don't, Zach, we need to talk about, you're not going to appeal to prospective historian girlfriends. <laughs> you keep letting on stuff like this. Uh, but how do you read someone's shoe? Um, to be honest, when I first started looking at shoes, I didn't know. I didn't have a clue. So I kind of managed to talk my way into a museum. Um, and that's the first part, the first challenge in a way, because um, when you're looking at objects, it's not like a, a library or, a, you know, an archive where you can just rock up and look at stuff. You have to kind of arrange with the curators that they're going to give you access, usually to, you know, the, the, the back of house operation and that they will supervise you while you're handling these priceless objects. So that can take some time. And once a shoe was placed in front of me, um, to, the first time I was just kind of puzzled. I mean, what do I do with this? I kind of measured it and took a couple of photos and then put yeah. it back. Well, that's um, a, I, so baby boots. I'm like, okay, that's cute. Yeah. That's sweet. Sad. Absolutely. So Where the kind of initial reaction is like, okay, what's next? But then after handling a few, I kind of got the hang of it. And I started... Um, kind of engaging with them a bit more physically. So, you know, how, how heavy are they? How flexible are they? Okay. And I started looking for signs of wear, signs of damage, so, you know, clues about the wearer. Because shoes almost never come with a provenance. You know, you very rarely have this shoe belong to X and they have this role. Um, and if they do, it's often a myth. Yeah. There's all sorts of myths associated with shoes. Um, but um, so you have, kind of have to work it out for yourself. And the, the if you like, the, the, the best source about the shoe is the shoe itself. Yeah, you have to kind of try and work out what is it about its physical properties that can tell us what it would have been like to wear, who might have owned it, um, you know, speculate about the, the person who owned it and how big or heavy or how they walked and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, by kind of engaging with it as a as a material object and really, you know, getting quite uh, kind of physical with it, you can get a sense of what this object's like. I've got to ask, how did you get into this? Because certainly I know you for your military history work, and I'm sure that's the case for a lot of people. You know, you are predominantly a, a military historian, albeit one that, that looks at masculinity <laughs> and, and gender and issues like that. So how did you get into shoes? Because like Alex says, you know, there are loads of anecdotes from soldiers about, you know, getting the boots repaired and, and complaining about, you know, they're two sizes too small and they're falling apart, etc. But to actually sit down and then start to think about the shoe as a source is something else entirely. Yes, I mean, I was working on the Georgian military and um, particularly the militia, which was the kind of the part time defence force. And there were loads of writings about the militia and it was all very gendered. It was all about masculinity. You know, these are men standing up for um, house and home. They're patriotic defenders of their women folk and all that kind of stuff. So there were loads of writings about militiamen, but very few writings by militiamen talking about their experiences. I wanted to find out, OK, so this heavily gendered kind of masculinized language around these soldiers is that borne out in their actual experience we don't know a great deal about the common people who served um, they were balloted they didn't have a great deal of choice they're mostly kind of illiterate laborers so i was trying to do a kind of a history from below trying to understand the lives of these ordinary soldiers and in the embodying the militia book i sort of experimented with various approaches and one of them was material culture i had a chapter looking at uniforms material possessions and stuff like that 
So I suppose shoes, as you say, is the obvious next step because soldiers grumble about them all the time. Um, and that was something I was always seeing in the sources. If you read Napoleonic War memoirs from the peninsula and things like that, where they basically just marched around for years, um, constantly grumbling about their feet. Wellington's constantly writing letters saying, we need 20,000 boots when we get to Badayoth and things like that, you know. Um, so there's lots of kind of written sources there. But what I really wanted to get at was the, the physical experience I wanted to think about. And, and happily for me, I'm, I'm based at Northampton, uh, which is the centre of the British shoe industry, and also the, the National Shoe Collection is based here at the museum. So it's on my doorstep. I was very lucky. So it's it's an obvious question to ask, and, and I'm deliberately resisting the temptation to kind of dive into Peninsula stuff, which listeners will be very <laughs> pleased about. So let's move it swiftly on before I fail to to hold back that temptation. What are the distinctions between men's footwear and women's footwear during this period? Is it purely style or is it also functional? Yeah, it's it's both. Um, and I think, I mean, nowadays, of course, we have assumptions about what men's footwear and women's footwear are like. We tend to assume that men's footwear is fairly plain and functional, whereas women's footwear is perhaps stereotypically more kind of ornamental. Um, but it needn't be so. Yeah, because actually there's no anatomical difference between men's and women's feet. Women's feet tend to be a bit smaller, but that's about it, really. It's kind of cultural and historical why we think about this difference between men's and women's feet. And it's arguably the 18th century when our kind of modern assumptions about men's and women's feet and their footwear arise. Because it's, I think, at the beginning of the century, there's not a great deal of difference between certainly elite men's and elite women's shoes. They're both quite fancy. They both have a heel. They're of a fairly similar shape. But as the century goes on, men's and women's footwear kind of goes in different directions, kind of diverges. So men's footwear becomes heels lower. They become a lot more practical, a lot more suitable for walking rather than just riding, uh, a lot more suitable for outdoor activities. Um, whereas women's shoes become a lot more uh, flimsy, are made of, um, of silk and wool and things like that, only really suitable for indoor activities. So, I mean, historians often argue that it's in the 18th century that a lot of our modern ideas about gender arose and ideas about men and women kind of diverged into kind of different spheres. I think shoes are kind of part of that story. Yeah, that's exactly what I was about to ask. But is this kind of a manifestation of those kind of separate spheres, private sphere for women? Therefore, they don't need the hard need inverted commas, hard wearing footwear, as opposed to the men going out to work, perhaps tending to a field or, or in the case of soldiers marching. So they need something sturdier. So in terms of men's footwear, do you see a distinction in terms of class as well, in terms of what they're made of and how they're put together? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think this is, um, this is particularly true where soldiers are concerned. Because um, actually, you know, I started out looking at military footwear, but kind of rapidly realised that if you're thinking about particularly officers in this period, it's very difficult to tell which is a military boot and which is a civilian boot, um, because they're both made by the same boot makers to a very similar pattern. Um, and they would go about acquiring them in the same way. So an officer would get kind of a grant from government which to buy their uniform and they would engage a, a tailor or a, you know or a, a bootmaker 
to make their uniform and it would be bespoke. It would be kind of made for them, very high quality. Um, whereas the soldiers, um, their shoes were supplied in bulk and they certainly weren't made to measure. Uh, they'd be very lucky if they actually fitted. They would be supplied in a range of sizes and actually it's military footwear that first gives us this the, the kind of the numbered sizing that we have today, the standard numbered sizing, so that, you know, they could order a certain number of shoes and they, they would have a chance of fitting the people who ended up getting them. But it's fair to assume that most soldiers were wearing shoes that didn't really fit properly. Yeah, and this also, big... this is a period when shoes were straight-lasted, okay? They weren't last to, to the left and right feet. You could wear a shoe on either foot. And soldiers were instructed to change their shoes every day from foot to foot to stop them wearing out unevenly. Yeah. So the military was making them even more. I mean, you know, if you, if you kind of wear a foot cons- a shoe consistently on one foot, it would eventually mould to the foot and it has a chance of being vaguely comfy. Um, but the soldiers were told not to do this. Um, so I think they had to rely on quite thick socks to make sure that these dreadful shoes rip their feet apart. So is there any sense of that having an impact on the the, the shape of their feet and um, kind of the, the the structure, if you like, of the foot? Because if you're, I'm thinking of um, a phenomenon that was quite popular in Japan of kind of binding ladies' feet. So they had incredibly small feet that almost kind of looked like hooves rather than, than actual feet. Do you see something on a much smaller scale within the army or is there just not the evidence to, to look into that? Yeah, well, first of all, there isn't really the evidence because hardly any of, of the shoes from common soldiers have survived. Um, I mean, that they were worn till they wore out. There was no incentive to preserve these things. Um, so although, you know, millions were produced over the course of the Napoleonic Wars, we've got hardly any to go on. Um, but uh, I think it's more of an issue um, among elites who were kind of wearing high fashion, less practical footwear. There was a fashion in the early 19th century to wear shoes that were too small. That even people who were having bespoke footwear made were having footwear that was made too small because it was fashionable to have the appearance of small feet. That was the kind of silhouette that they were going for. Um, and you get a lot of incidents of things like bunions, a lot of a lot of writings about footwear, so kind of early work on chiropody and stuff like that is highly critical of this footwear that people are wearing that's basically, you know, playing havoc with their feet and causing all sorts of complaints. So, um, yeah, it's more of an issue for people higher up the spectrum, I think. I really want to ask, I just, <laughs> there's a note, there's a note in the notes and I'm like, well, we could do a bit of trans history now. Have you got any evidence of it? Like men adapting women's shoes or is it just, it's hard to tell if it's a particularly large shoe, if it was just a woman with a large foot or if a men wore it or vice versa. Do you, uh, what evidence is there of sort of cross-dressing? I mean, the evidence, the 18th century is, is a kind of a great age of cross-dressing. Um, so I think in a way, the 18th century is the last time that we had a very kind of fluid and playful idea about gender before the kind of the barriers came down in the 19th century and men were men and the women Victorian were women. showed up. And yeah, them absolutely. Yes. So um, <laughs> actually in the, in the 18th century, there's a very common story that you often see on the stage and in print about a woman dressing as a soldier in order to follow her lover who's been conscripted or whatever. Um, and there's lots of famous examples of this, like Hannah Snell. 
And these are kind of, you know, um, sort of heroines now for kind of lesbian and trans history because, um, you know, they're sort of, a, kind of early and quite public examples of, of cross-dressers. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. So what do these shoes actually tell you about how the Georgians are thinking about masculinity beyond kind of sturdiness and, and roles within society? What else can we kind of unpick about masculinity from these? Yeah, so as you say, it tells us about what people do in society, so what roles they have. But I think it also tells us quite a lot about the body. It tells us a lot about the appearance of the body. So shoes affect your posture. Um, they affect your body shape. They affect how you move, if you can move in a kind of a smooth, elegant way. So, you know, a man wearing um, beautiful, bespoke, soft leather Wellington boots would move in a different way to a mill worker who was wearing clogs, who, you know, that gives them a very different, a much noisier kind of gait. And um, it also affects the, the if you like, the, the outline, the silhouette of the body, because different ages of history have got different ideals about the body. Mm. And um, I think in the mid-18th century, men tended to wear stockings, breeches and and shoes with a bit of a heel and a long coat. Um, At the beginning of the 19th century, um, instead men were wearing boots rather than buckled shoes. So the, the sort of the buckled shoes, stockings, breeches thing came to be much associated with the aristocracy in the age of the French Revolution. It's much more fashionable for men to wear trousers or pantaloons with boots, which gave them a much kind of longer looking smooth leg. Um, so it, it affects our kind of image of the body and how they appear. So, I mean, we need to think about shoes, but we also need to think about how they fit in with the, the wider silhouette, the wider kind of image of the men's body. Which is quite interesting, because if you think about caricatures during this period, and yes, OK, caricatures, they're obviously an exaggeration by their nature. You, If you, have, um, if you think about the stereotypical drawing of John Ball, he's a portly guy. You know, let's, let's be frank, he's, he's overweight. Um, so do you find evidence from presumably you've looked at a fair few hundred of these now do you find that actually you see distinctions in how the shoe responds to the wearer in the sense of their weight so are some shoes kind of looking do they look a bit different now because the the person wearing them was was portly it's really difficult to tell um and i think it's probably difficult to distinguish between different types of wear um but i mean some of the shoes in museums are you know completely destroyed 
Um, and, and the ones that are retrieved by archaeologists tend to be the more working class ones that kind of got discarded rather than kept. Um, they're often just fragments that are very, very heavily worn. Um, sometimes you can see how shoes have been repaired. So because they're so expensive, people would eke them out as long as they possibly could. So, for example, a boot that might have once belonged to a gentleman, you know, that might have been handed down to a servant. They might have then chopped it down to a shoe. Uh, that might then have been passed on to somebody else who repaired the heel, stuck in hobnails, put a little cut in it because it was too big and they needed they were struggling to get it on and off. So there's all sorts of ways in which, you know, a shoe has a kind of a life cycle, particularly if it passes through several hands. So from a military angle, because I'm I'm sorry, Alex, but I'm tempted to go down the military line, so you're, you're going to have to just put up with this. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. It's, <laughs> it's all about the war with us, unfortunately. How does this end up relating to military masculinity? Well, I suppose first we should give people a sense of what military masculinity or, or martial masculinity, I should say, is. Yeah, I think it's, it's very interesting because um, for... For most of the 18th century, people's ideas about soldiers are pretty negative. Mm. So, of course, nowadays we have a very positive view of soldiers. You know, whether or not you agree with the wars they're fighting, we respect soldiers' professionalism and bravery and all those kind of things. And we, you know, celebrate sacrifices that that soldiers make. But um, in the 18th century, soldiers were often regarded as, you know, coming from the, the sort of the dregs of society. Common soldiers were people who perhaps where, you know, a magistrate might give them a chance of joining the army instead of instead of serving a sentence. Um, they may be basically desperate men who are trying to escape things. Um, so, you know, we're the Duke of Wellington, of course, referred to them as the scum of the earth. And people had a pretty lowly view of soldiers. And it's quite political um, because the army was seen as a, a kind of a, an extension of the government's power. So they were very concerned about standing army um, and the way that it could be used against the civilian population. Um, so, you know, if there was a riot, for example, there's no police called upon in the 18th century. They're calling the army. So as you can imagine, they're not always terribly popular. But I think over the course of the Napoleonic Wars, though, the, the image of the soldier really improves, and particularly the common soldier. And they're... Uh, sort of experiences of, of war and battle in particular, these are seen as these kind of really significant uh, romantic experiences that everybody needs to read about. And you know, the, the soldier's memoir became a real kind of genre at the end of the Napoleonic Wars. Everybody wanted to read about the heroes of Waterloo and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, the, the, the masculinity of the soldier does change, I think. And um, they're, they're viewed as a kind of a heroic, working class, muscular figure, I think, certainly by the end of the Napoleonic Wars. It's quite a remarkable transformation, isn't it? I mean, it always strikes me as being potentially a hang up from the English Civil War and yeah. the whole kind of issues around republicanism and so on. And, and certainly the reason why there isn't a push for a large standing army is, is partly a result of that, to simplify it a little bit. But as you say, there's a transformation that happens during the Napoleonic Wars because you get this phenomenon of scarlet fever in part, where ladies sort of start taking a shine to men in uniform, despite all of this stuff about, that you're saying about how the the average private or NCO isn't 
considered a respectable figure. So <laughs> you don't really want your daughter running off to <laughs> to um, elope with uh, a private renuncio because there isn't the respectability it's pride and prejudice, there, isn't it? It is, often and also as well, yeah. we have um, khaki fever in World War One as well. So absolutely, yeah. So khaki fever was the the sort of the World War One version of scarlet fever. Of course, in you know in, in the Napoleonic Wars, they're wearing red coat. We're, even now, there's a uniform dating set up. Did you know that? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. if a woman wants to date a man in uniform, it's a dating site. <laughs> paramedics now and things like that and policemen yeah Yeah, if a woman's looking for a guy in uniform (laughs) there's a whole website for it and yeah men in uniform were were in demand apparently in in the napoleonic wars um so um historian um, louise carter's written about scarlet fever it's it's a fascinating phenomenon i think it says a lot about kind of the culture of wartime as well um, because wartime often has an impact on gender relations um, it often casts men as the, the the sort of the heroic defenders of the nation and their women folk, and it often puts women in um, perhaps more passive, dependent kind of roles, particularly in the era of the Napoleonic Wars, where you're talking about kind of citizen soldiers. You know, whole nations of men folk are being called up into the army. That very much identifies um, sort of civilian masculinity with with the military. Okay. And, uh, and so it's not not unconnected to the the improvement in the image of the soldier that happens over this period, but I think it it also um, gives us an insight into uh, into uh, sort of how popular military masculinity was. And what has your research uncovered in terms of shoes shedding a light on martial masculinity? I mean, how does like you say, you know, these these shoes end up the, certainly the soldiers' boots they end up being quite worn. So how do you take that and then work out what that tells us about ideals of manliness within the army yeah that's really interesting i think um there's we also have to think about the relationship between kind of civilian ideas about masculinity and and the military and how the two kind of change hand in hand um often kind of military fashions become very fashionable in times of war so you know the boot becomes very fashionable in the 1790s men are wearing kind of hessian boots um there's the shift away from breeches which is seen as kind of a bit kind of aristocratic and degenerate towards trousers which of course are worn by soldiers and sailors uh and then certainly by about the 1820s and 30s everybody is wearing wellington boots you know they are the, the kind of the patriotic footwear that any kind of uh, well-respecting statesman uh, would be seen. So you often get fashion trends that kind of quite directly relate to the kind of the wartime situation. Yeah, we were going to ask you about this. So it wasn't rare then. So this is completely indulging Zach and his Napoleonic obsession. Yeah, that's all right. Nodding like grinning massively. So the modern day Welly is credited to the Duke of Wellington um, who cut his boots off mid Calf, but what you're saying is so this is generally thought quite dandyish, isn't it? So you're saying it wasn't that unusual for army officers to set fashion trends that caught on. No, no, absolutely. I mean, um, as you say, uh, I mean, the modern day Welly doesn't bear that much relationship to the Duke of Wellington's Welly. I mean, it wasn't a rubber boot, uh, that the um, the Duke of Wellington's boot was um, a bit like the old top boot or hessian boot but whereas the hessian boot kind of rose to the knee and it was quite kind of decorated out of tassel and things like that you couldn't really wear it under trousers 
um, uh, Wellington wanted uh, a boot that was kind of much more smooth and fitted and a bit shorter, so it could be worn under trousers. So it's a kind of a practical boot for wearing on campaign. It's a boot that you could wear for riding, because boots were originally equestrian wear, effectively. Um, but early kind of riding boots, you can't really walk in them. They're completely rigid, and they've got high heels and stuff like that. Um, so Wellington wanted a kind of a practical boot that could be worn either in the saddle or when kind of walking around. And it, Wellington boots became... Um, they were made out of very supple leather um, and they're very fitted. So they're very much bespoke wear. You wouldn't get an off the peg Wellington. It would have to be made to your body. This is a time before you've got elastics and things like that. So the boot had to fit quite exactly. So this is something that um, Wellington commissioned from um, Hobie, who was the most uh, kind of famous and prestigious bootmaker of the day. And this was uh, sent to Wellington and he wore it on the on the Waterloo campaign, and uh, the rest is history. What do we know about working-class footwear then? Because what strikes me is that you, for folks who aren't familiar, there is the, the ideals about things like martial race, which is essentially this idea that in certain regions of any country, there are certain pockets of population that are particularly well-suited to military life. So, for example, in the UK, they talk about people from the Highlands, being particularly suited to life in the army. When the British go out to India, they try and do a, a similar kind of thing out there in terms of different regions and, and whether or not that makes certain people better suited to army life. So when you look at shoes, do you see some of those ideals playing out in a slightly different way in the sense of, you know, you've got these, these rural workers who have to live this sort of rugged, hardy lifestyle in some constructions and and so therefore they need a certain type of footwear to match that lifestyle. Do you see that playing out or is it just a case that working class footwear simply has to be functional for the wearer as opposed to fashionable? Yeah, I mean, working class footwear is kind of much more functional. Um, it tends to be, um, they tend to pay for things that will be hard wearing because shoes are so kind of expensive. So um I mean, I say clogs are often worn, but they're not full wooden clogs like you might expect to see in Holland. They're perhaps a wooden sole with a uh, with a leather upper. That's the kind of thing that kind of might commonly be worn. Or if they do wear um, shoes that have got a leather sole, the sole will be quite thick. It will be made out of quite hard leather, and it will typically have hobnails in it. So, I mean, hobnails are quite useful uh, because they make the sole wear out more slowly. Um, they're also quite good for grip if you're wearing them on kind of muddy ground. Yeah, so common soldiers often wear hobnails. In fact, they often wear um, a kind of a, a metal plate that is kind of um, U-shaped. So much in the same way that horses are kind of shod with uh, a kind of a horseshoe, uh, working men are as well. I mean, they're literally beasts of burden um, who are shod in much the same way as the horses are. And how do these shoes survive? You know, because you, you mentioned about how there's this kind of people don't really like to use secondhand shoes for a variety of reasons. Sometimes they do out of necessity because of, they're poor. I mean, are people buried with their shoes? Do, how do you end up with a shoe being preserved? Because with the best one in the world, and OK, this is kind of consumer culture in the 20th century. But if, if my pair of shoes reach the end of their life, they go in the bin. Because yeah. that's probably the best place for them. Frankly. Don't <laughs> want to, nobody else wants to be wearing those shoes. So how do these things survive the passage of time? 
Yeah, well, there's, there's definitely a kind of survival bias here in terms of class. So most of the shoes that are in museums um, are, first of all, more kind of elite um, and they tend to be women's shoes. because It tends to be the fancier ones that get kept. Now, there's no there's no need to keep a or at least at the time people thought there was no need to keep a kind of an ordinary shoe it's the kind of the it's the distinctive ones the interesting ones that kind of thing and shoe museums don't think that nowadays so you know the, the northampton museum will be very happy to take a pair of manky old trainers because uh you know that is a that's a historic record we're more kind of you know interested in that now um but um yeah the, the ones that are in museums tend to be more women's shoes because they're more ornamental, tend to be more upper class. But if, like me, you're trying to study working men's footwear, you've got a bit of a challenge in your hands. There aren't that many remaining. Um, and as I say, more evidence comes from perhaps archaeological digs where you'll get shoes that, uh, maybe scraps of shoes. The trouble is leather um, only survives in certain conditions. So it would have to be, it would have to end up in something like a peat bog or something like that that would actually enable it to be preserved um, because leather decays. Um, and in shoe museums today, they have to be really careful to keep them in the right kind of atmospheric conditions. And when you're handling them, you have to wear gloves because on your fingers are, you know, water, acid, oil, all the things that can make leather degrade. So, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of a, a bit amazing that any shoes have survived at all. This has been brilliant. I so like I didn't think I was going to be so mesmerised by shoes doing this interview. Uh, if other people are mesmerised and they want to learn more about the history of shoes, or perhaps start having a look at some historical shoes, where is the V&A a good place to start? Yeah, absolutely. V&A is great. I mean, do come to Northampton. Uh, our museum here has had a refit over the last couple of years. I think it was due to open, but obviously the pandemic got in the way. But uh, that's where the National Shoe Collection is held in Northampton. Also the National Leather Collection, which has got a lot of examples of historic shoes. So I'm going to big Northampton up here and suggest you pay a visit. Do it. I, do you know what? I was there in that little brief window of lockdown. I had to film about Walter Tull at the football ground. Oh, great. It wasn't the best day. It was raining and it was horrible. But I will be back. I will come and look at your shoes. I'm up for this. Are you, Zach? Oh, absolutely. I, I'm really I'm really pl- pleased that we, we got this one done. And I'm not sure if we kind of discovered whether or not the gentleman wears Prada, but the gentleman wears something um, and it's it's been preserved as opposed to the working class that hasn't. Matthew, thank you so much for this. It's been great. Thank you. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Alina and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life is going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join... There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 
10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.